Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Today, a maddening example of how you are paying for so-called science only to be barred from any oversight on the said science as federal agencies and researchers use a variety of tricks to keep the information we paid for secret. Okay, I will announce it here and now. I am working on my next book at the request of HarperCollins, which is entitled, Follow the Science. It's not just about the COVID mess that we find ourselves in regarding COVID-19, the response to it, the origins, the vaccine, and so on. A lot of people are writing about that, but I will have some new stuff in my book. But it also takes a look at the larger picture of what I think is a perverted scientific community, the perverted scientific processes, the perversion of science when it comes to what doctors may be taught in medical school and who's behind the funding of the curriculum. And that includes the continuing medical education classes that they take upon their graduation from medical school. I've reported on, written about, spoken about these topics over the years, but I hope this book, Follow the Science, will become a real definitive work on the subject, not only for the uninitiated who don't know much about it, it'll be written in a way that they can get up to speed, there will be citations and proof and studies and evidence in there, but this will also shed new light for people who are somewhat familiar with the topic who've already scratched beneath the surface and know that something is seriously wrong. In today's podcast, a really interesting example among many of science that is at best questionable and how difficult it is for outsiders, people who are not in on the whole thing, to ask relevant questions, to look at the data, to figure out if the study is real or perhaps if there are conflicts of interest involved. We are talking about a study that was published in May of this year, May of 2023. The study's purpose was supposedly to monitor for serious neurological or brain and nerve adverse events connected to the COVID-19 vaccine. But what they really seemed to be doing was try to rule out neurological events rather than look at them with an unbiased eye. The study was published in the Journal of Neurology Clinical Practice. It was entitled, and you can look this up if you like, Observational Study of Patients Hospitalized with Neurologic Events After SARS-CoV-2 Vaccination, December 2020 to June 2021. If you do a search under Neurology Clinical Practice, or you may not even need the name of the journal, but with part of the title such as Observational Study of Patients, comma, Neurological Events After SARS, you should be able to find the study. Anyway, it was funded by CDC by your tax dollars and then conducted by researchers at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. And wait until you hear the tricks they use to keep the data and the details of this study secret. Mind you, we funded it. We own the data. This is public information and they're publishing on it and yet they're able to tell us that we can't have access to the information they use to come up with their conclusions? And why would they want to keep that information secret? Very unscientific indeed. That's perhaps the biggest question. There are so many issues here, so let's start with looking at the fact that this is not in dispute, that side effects from vaccines and other medicines 
can arise years after the medicine is taken. However, the study scientists don't mention that. They limited their examination to a six-week time period after a COVID-19 vaccine. In other words, people had to come up with an adverse event that they looked at within six weeks, even though we know it's been well established that vaccine adverse events, and particularly it's being established COVID vaccine adverse events can arise months and years later out of the blue, even among those who did not suffer serious consequences after COVID or after the initial vaccine. Another issue I see is they looked at such a tiny sample to draw such big conclusions. They looked at 138 people who'd gotten vaccination and then ended up hospitalized with anything that was on a list of neurologic conditions that they looked at, such as stroke or blood clot, encephalopathy or brain damage, seizure or brain disorder, and intracranial hemorrhage or bleeding. But what really got my attention was the nonsensical conclusion. The study said that all 138 patients had risk factors or established causes for their illnesses, such as high blood pressure for stroke victims, and therefore this proves the vaccines are safe. Here's a quote from the study, quote, all cases in this study were determined to have at least one risk factor and or known etiology accounting for their neurologic symptoms. Our comprehensive clinical review of these cases supports the safety of mRNA COVID vaccines. That's under study discussion. When I read that, I really had to do a double take. Surely these preeminent researchers understand that basic science shows people with risk factors are more likely to suffer adverse events from medication. The fact that the patients had risk factors prior to vaccination doesn't exonerate the vaccines at all. In fact, it potentially implicates the vaccines as yet another medicine that can add health risks to people who already have illnesses, as do most Americans. To put it more simply, this is akin to saying that somebody who's you know 21 years old and otherwise healthy got a COVID vaccine and within a week suffered a unexplained, otherwise unexplained heart attack. And they look at his background and they say, oh, you know, his grandfather had a heart attack and his dad had some heart issues. Therefore, we can't blame the vaccine for this young person's heart issue. He had something else that explains it. That's really unscientific. Just because you can find a cause or an explanation for something doesn't mean there aren't other contributing causes and doesn't mean that the cause you've identified is in fact the cause at all. A lot more digging would have to be done to make such a conclusion. Well, I contacted the primary study author, Dr. Kieran Thakur, to see if I was missing something. After all, I'm not a scientist, but I will tell you I have successfully gotten corrections of scientific articles in the past because when you read this stuff and you see it doesn't make sense, you might be right. You probably wonder to yourself, well, surely the editors ask these questions, Surely I'm seeing something, but there must be an explanation. Don't assume that in today's environment. That's not necessarily the case. Maybe you're asking the real questions they should have asked. Maybe the study isn't valid, but nobody bothered to look at it through the lens that we're looking at it through. Maybe, as journal editors have themselves disclosed, such as the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Marcia Angel, or the editor of the British journal Lancet, Dr. Richard Horton, Maybe some studies are conflicted because they're serving some kind of special interest. And as 
Dr. Horton said many of the studies today in published prestigious journals are not to be believed. Maybe you're looking at one such study. Surely legitimate scientists would want their work examined, would welcome explaining questions or answering questions about their work, right? So I contacted Dr. Thakur and I asked this question by email. I said the study seems to imply that because people who suffered certain neurological events shortly after COVID vaccination had risk factors, it exonerates the vaccines from blame. But, I asked, did the authors consider that people with existing risk factors could be at greater risk for vaccine adverse events? Well, Dr. Thakur replied, but instead of answering the question, he asked one of his own. He said, can you clarify the purpose of your questions to be published? personal inquiry, or otherwise. When I told him that it might be published, he went dark on me. When I persisted, I kept emailing him, asking if he would please respond. He finally answered, declining, thank you. Which, of course, left me to wonder, why isn't a legitimate scientist happy to answer a simple question about his work? What's the big secret? Again, though, to see if I might be missing something in my own conclusions about the study, I next queried the editorial staff of the publishing journal. They stated, in response to my email, that only Dr. Thakur could answer a question like the one I was asking. And again, I wondered, shouldn't the journal be asking the same question I'm asking? Why aren't they? Without much help getting information, I decided to see if maybe there would be something in the information, hints in the study data, and the communications about it. So, I wrote Columbia University asking for those materials. A basic tenet of scientific research, as you may know, is, or it used to be, transparency in the data and all aspects of the study. In fact, a study isn't considered legitimate unless it's verifiable and replicable. In other words, everything about it has to be accessible for others to repeat the same type of study if they choose and see if they get the same results. But too often today in these sort of question studies, the information about them is kept a tightly held secret. Well, after some back and forth, Columbia University informed me that they are a private institution and not subject to freedom of information law. Hmm, interesting. They can be funded with public taxpayer money and a public agency, but then say that they don't have to release information or answer questions because they are a private institution. If I didn't know better, it would almost feel as though the government can launder our funds legally to private entities to conduct studies and put out narratives that they then cannot be examined on or questioned about. I tried to tactfully raise that point with Columbia University. I said that, in essence, why would they want to keep details on an important publicly funded study secret? And I appeal to them on the basis of scientific transparency. Doesn't keeping this stuff secret go against tenets of sound science? Well, the next response I got was Columbia University told me they will respond to validly issued and served court subpoenas or court orders. And they told me that subpoenas to the university must be served on the office of the general counsel and provided me a link with more information. Again, Think of it, a private university can take our money through CDC, publish a study, and then refuse to answer questions about it because they're a private university. Well, I simultaneously filed a Freedom of Information Act request for materials about the same study from CDC, the funding entity, because unlike Columbia, 
CDC is undeniably subject to freedom of information law. However, I know too well from experience that virtually all the federal agencies, including CDC, have been allowed to pervert the FOIA process into a system they use to obfuscate and hide information. So it becomes sort of a wild goose chase. They rarely meet the statutory deadline to produce material, which is 20 working days, but are never punished for the violation. And in the case of this neurology study that I was asking about, CDC sat on my FOIA request for 42 days. Remember, a response is due in 20 working days. And then they wrote back that, oh, they hadn't started processing the request yet because they needed more information. Now, all of this gets at the newer tricks federal agencies have deployed to keep us from accessing information we own. They now tend to require any request that you make to be so precise and narrow that it can be really impossible to craft. In other words, one would have to have access to the information being sought in order to answer the questions the agency requires to be answered in order to access the information sought. And then, if you don't have the information they're demanding, they deny the request saying it's just too broad and burdensome, you don't have enough precision, and then they throw in there that the courts have held, they don't have to respond to such requests that are like that. So think about it this way. On any important controversy where within an agency people have discussed something widely, because it was an important controversy, and it has generated a lot of documents and communications, the agency can keep all that secret by de facto denying a FOIA request on the grounds that it would return too many records. And the courts say they don't have to respond to a request that is too burdensome for them because it involves so many records. More tricks being used to keep our information from us, particularly when it comes to science and questionable science after a short break. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of cool products. A lot of them make great gifts that feature catchphrases like, I tested positive for critical thinking and do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab. We're back and I'm talking about the perverted scientific process, how our tax money can be funneled to a private agency or a private research group such as Columbia University Hospital to conduct research that we technically own, but that can then be kept secret from us using the twisted logic that because a federal agency funnels our tax money to a private group that we have no right to see it and we can't ask the questions or do oversight on questionable science. The study I'm talking about today was one that was put out, seems to me, along with other studies, to try to dispel a lot of research that shows links between all kinds of neurological events and COVID-19 vaccines. Or there are studies that are put out that try to say, well, hey, yeah, there's some after the vaccines, but there are also some after COVID, so therefore it's a wash. Or they may say neurologic events 
are more frequent after COVID-19 than after vaccination. And there, there are just so many questions to be raised about all of those approaches. For example, neurologic events are emerging weeks, months, and years after both COVID and COVID vaccines. So, so to pretend that we've been able to make anything other than short-term observations is disingenuous. But also, as you may have guessed, the government is very careful to try to get every adverse event after COVID-19 reported, but just as eager to dismiss any adverse event after COVID vaccine that they can. So you're not really comparing and gathering of data apples to apples. Thirdly, let's say COVID-19 and the COVID vaccines both carry, just for the sake of argument, a roughly equal chance of making some sort of neurologic event. Well, that doesn't mean there is no added risk to you if you take a vaccine because in most cases, people are taking more than one and risk comes with each additional vaccine that you take. So you're not just getting a one-time additional neurologic event risk. And scientists are finding that if you have COVID after or on top of or even before you've had the vaccine, that again adds to your risk of adverse event. See, they're basically trying to imply you may as well get the vaccine because your chance of a neurologic event is no greater after the vaccine than if you get COVID. But the point here is the vaccine doesn't keep you from getting COVID. And there is some emerging research that has talked about people with more vaccinations are getting more cases and episodes of COVID. Each episode of COVID and each vaccine, if these scientists are correct, increases your risk of neurologic events and other adverse events. So the folly of trying to say that the COVID vaccine risk is somehow equal to or no greater than what would happen to you if you didn't get the vaccine, that seems to me to be pretty unscientific. And as a reminder, the study at issue, very small study of 130 some odd people who've been vaccinated and in a very short period of time examined, showed up with adverse events of a neurologic nature and were looked at. Well, these scientists said because they could identify at least one pre-existing risk factor in each of the patients who developed some kind of neurologic events, they said this exonerates or proves the safety of the vaccines when it doesn't do that at all. Well, my caveat is I could be wrong in my obvious conclusion, but they sure aren't working to clarify anything or explain themselves when I'm asking the question. So I tend to think I'm probably correct. And they have gone to great lengths to make sure that this information, which should be public in nature, is not accessible by me through freedom of information requests or through other asks. I want to continue on by talking about other obstacles that were put up in the way of me getting at this important information that could answer questions or even prove that my own conclusion or observations were incorrect. Because of my years of experience, I happen to know that the tactics being applied now by some federal agencies as they fail to properly respond to Freedom of Information Act requests have been fairly recently fabricated. And I believe, based on experience again, for the sole purpose of making sure it's harder for us to get at the information. And this new tactic has to do with the federal agencies demanding certain parameters and information of FOIA requests that are kind of impossible to fulfill. So with this neurology study funded by CDC, 
Before proceeding with the freedom of information search that I asked CDC to conduct, the agency wanted to know, first of all, the grant number of the study, which interestingly was not provided or published with the study. A lot of times the grant number is mentioned under study funding, but not so in this case. So I don't have that information. They also wanted me to give them the names of the people who hold the data and communications and records that I seek, which I have no way of knowing. I would have to take a wild guess at who might have been discussing this study, what departments might have been weighing in on it. And they want me to also identify with precision the exact records I seek rather than the categories of records and rather than them sending me all the records pertaining to the study. And I know things didn't used to be done this way because I've made many FOIA requests and had some that were responded to and some that I've litigated in court that didn't require these parameters that they are now requiring. In the past, a subject such as this study could be searched agency-wide or within a big department without the requester, like me, having to name the names and titles of each employee who I think might have had conversations about it and also provide what division they're in. How would I know that information? That's in fact something that I'm trying to find out. Requiring me to have the answers to questions I don't have or to take a stab at guessing at them almost ensures I'm going to miss important information. I litigated a freedom of information request against the FBI years ago and Although they did illegally withhold responsive materials, I can tell you they did conduct the search without pretending that I needed to provide all the names of the people with email accounts and their titles to search. Now the agencies frequently demand all of that. The subdepartments, archaic information that I couldn't possibly have, the names of people whose email accounts should be searched, further their titles, all kinds of things. And here is perhaps what I find to be the greatest irony. These agencies, these federal agencies that routinely break freedom of information law by failing to meet deadlines, that have devised these extra statutory systems where they require us to have certain information, well, they demand this information from us, and they set an arbitrary deadline of their own and announced that if you don't respond to their information in time, they're going to close out your Freedom of Information Act request. I'll point out nothing in FOIA law permits such actions, but this is often the norm nonetheless. They're basically saying, well, we won't follow the law or meet lawful deadlines, but what we will do is demand information from you and set our own deadline and cancel you if you don't meet our requirements. And Congress and the courts allow all of it. When something is finally litigated, which is very expensive to the requester, most people can't afford it, and is very time-consuming, which means it at least serves the purpose of delay that the federal agency is trying to accomplish, and it spends taxpayer money because the federal agency has unlimited taxpayer money to fight and litigate a FOIA request, at the end of the road, even when you win, as I have on several occasions, nobody is held responsible for unlawfully denying the existence of records or failing to provide them the way they were supposed to. And years have gone by in some instances, meaning the news story someone like me was working on where I needed the documents for, that no longer exists or is in play. And the agency will then go from falsely claiming they have no responsive records to 
after losing their lawsuit, saying, well, we have so many responsive records, we can't possibly provide them all now. We have to do a rolling production request. That's a great trick where they say, we will provide 10,000 documents a month over a period of time. And one time when they did that in a case with me, I pointed out to the court that this meant something like 20 years it was going to take for them to provide the required documents. And the court, I guess, had not done the math. The judge actually pointed out to the federal agency that Ms. Atkinson is correct. This is a timeline that comes out to something like 20 years. Can you go a little faster, perhaps? So you see how all of these tools that are supposed to be at our disposal to ensure that we have access to the information we own have been perverted by the federal agencies and used to their advantage to withhold information from us. Congress could change the law, but I guess probably because the committees of Congress are captured by the federal agencies in many instances, they don't do anything that would ensure we can get our information. I have heard there is an impact in states like Florida that have very tough and good and strong freedom of information laws in Florida, Sunshine Act laws. I heard the story told to me in journalism school one time that one or two people were put in prison or in jail for violating freedom of information or sunshine laws in Florida, and that after that, they didn't have a problem with that anymore with people improperly withholding material. Likewise, on a federal basis, if just a couple of people were punished or held responsible for improperly withholding information from us under freedom of information law, the problem would probably go away. But for whatever reason, nobody is taking steps to do such a thing. A reminder, we are talking about information that we paid for and own, but end up having to beg for in vain. Nothing scientific about that. If you're interested in looking at some references or reading about this, I'll be putting a printed version of this on my website at CherylAckison.com. Eyeshadow has come a long way since you swiped on one color at a time or practically had to take a masterclass in cosmetics to get the shading right. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid, and I've designed an exclusive shade-shifting multichrome pigment for eyes that's like no other you'll ever see. Just swipe it on your eyelids and the magic happens. Depending on the angle and light, it shifts between hues of gold and pink, or green and pink, and even purple and gold. The shading is done for you. Just $25 for a jar that will last you months. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off these incredible pigments by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the store tab and browse our great products. The most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Atkinson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing 
and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. 